And now let us pray. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I preach and in whose name we pray. Amen. So when you welcome a dog into your house, into your family, you develop a unspoken covenant with the animal, kind of social contract. In exchange for food and treats and other amenities, the dog agrees to do its business outside and not chew on your furniture. But sometimes the dog breaks the rules, and she knows she's doing it, and she knows that you know that she's doing it, because she sort of gives you this guilty look as she pivots away from you with something in her mouth that she knows she's not supposed to have. You know, so she gets a hold of my wallet. She kind of does one of these. <laughs> if you have a dog, you know what I mean. Now, we got our first dog a year ago in the midst of the pandemic, a golden retriever puppy that we named Furley. Now, she's a sweetheart, really good-natured and always happy to see you. People on Facebook uh, post memes about these dogs that say things like, Angels don't always have wings. Sometimes they have whiskers. Indeed, she's quite angelic. And she's pretty well behaved, too, although she's still a puppy and she gets a little too excited sometimes. This is especially true when she manages to slip past me and run out of the house. Now, this is the dog equivalent of your kids taking your car for a joyride without permission. Off she goes through the kitchen door and the attached garage, out the driveway and across the street to the park that adjoins our property. There's this hilarious scene from an old Chevy Chase movie called Funny Farm, which tells the story of a writer who moves out to the country with his family. And now that they've got this big yard, they decide to get a dog. And as soon as they bring it home, it leaps out of the family car and begins playing with some ducks in a nearby pond. That's one heck of a dog, Chevy Chase says with admiration, upon which the hound begins to run off into the yard. He sure likes to run, his wife says, a little concerned, as the dog just keeps on running and running and disappears into the nearby woods for the remainder of the film. I always think of this scene whenever Furley gets out of the house without a leash, terrified that the same thing is going to happen. She's just going to keep on running. You see, my wife, Angela, loves this dog more than life itself. Now, if anything were to happen to her on my watch, well, I don't even want to think about it. And so it was that when she slipped past me and out the door on a cold night last November, I immediately gave chase. She bolted towards the park, as usual, which has this huge field that she likes to run in great circles around in. But you see, after a heavy rain, the field becomes a sort of pond, flooded with a couple of feet of water and it attracts ducks and geese who seem to enjoy hanging out there. It attracted Furley, too, who decided to go for a late-night swim. And that's how I found myself around 10 o'clock p.m. on a chilly late autumn night up to my knees in rainwater, calling for a dog that paid me no mind. It was too dark to see much of anything, but I could sort of track her movements by listening for the splash of water and watching various ducks take to the sky off in the distance, squawking their displeasure when their serenity was disturbed by a giant 
clumsy, panting creature that bursts into their lives without warning. In the end, Angela came outside and called Furley's name, at which point she immediately emerged from the water and returned home. My family was more amused than I was when I stumbled through the door, soaking wet and filthy, my boots filled with cold water. For her part, Furley looked as happy as a clam. I mean, why wouldn't she? She enjoyed her little adventure. There's nothing quite like the joy of running free. Freedom is a loaded word and one that tends to be idealized. People tend to believe that freedom allows us to drop all of our obligations and do whatever we want, running off into the distance unencumbered, unleashed. That's only one kind of freedom, the kind mostly enjoyed by dogs at the park and children on summer break. Most of us, if we possess any maturity, understand freedom a little differently. It's not just a matter of less responsibility, but rather the freedom to pursue nobler goals than simply trying to survive. In a recent interview for the Christian Science Monitor, journalist and author Sebastian Junger shares an interesting perspective on this. The less reliant you are on other people for your survival needs, he says, the more free you are. When you live in a fully mechanized, technology-driven society where you eat food and live in homes and drive cars, none of which were grown or built by yourself, you're in this web of interdependence. That's a loss of freedom in some sense and a vast, incredible elevation of freedom in another sense. You are elevated from the tasks of survival. In other words, you aren't really free if you have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. And the Israelites, liberated from slavery in Egypt, learned this the hard way. When they fled into the wilderness, they seemed to think that they would immediately start living happily ever after. Freed from a life of hard labor, they finally had the opportunity to make their own rules and determine their own destiny. But they quickly realized that they were now subject to the tyranny of hunger and thirst and other basic needs that had been met in Egypt. And no one is free to pursue their dreams when they haven't got enough to eat. We talk a lot about freedom here in the United States. It's one of our highest ideals, the very bedrock of our republic. The problem is we can't seem to agree on a common definition of it. Some people have an intensely personal understanding of the word. Their freedom, the freedom of the individual to do as they please, is elevated to a kind of virtue. Others understand freedom in a more collective sense. Mine is dependent on yours. My well-being is dependent on yours. My flourishing is dependent on yours. They understand that a society is not free unless everyone in it, everyone, is free to fulfill their potential. A homeless guy asking for change is not really free. A single mother who works two jobs and still can't make ends meet is not free. The black man who fears for his life after being pulled over is not free. The woman who struggles with crippling depression is not free. The queer teenager who can't come out to their family is not free. The opioid addict and the alcoholic are not free. The people killed in yet another mass shooting are not free. 
Well, that's not my problem, some might say. Isn't it, though? As this uh, Sebastian Junger also says, I think modern society gives you the illusion that you're fully autonomous without owing anything back to the group. But the thing you have a right to is freedom from oppression by a more powerful ruling class. You do not have freedom from obligation. And that can take place on the most mundane levels. You have an obligation to drive on the right side of the road. You're part of a collective that is trying to keep everyone safe. Is that an impingement on your freedom? No. It's an impingement on your perceived rights. It's up to each of us as both Christians and citizens to work together to ensure that everyone in our society is free to live abundantly. Slowly but surely, the Israelites come to understand that a functioning society is about more than personal freedom to do what you like, more than about meeting your own personal needs and desires. In this text from Deuteronomy, Moses forges a covenant with God and his people in between his people, a common law that allows for a common good. Everyone's success is dependent on everyone else's, and no one is exempt from this interdependence, not even Moses. The leaders of your tribes, your elders, and your officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your women, and the immigrants who are in your camp, both those who cut your wood and who draw your water. From the elite to the working class, the citizen to the stranger, no one in this covenant is left behind. That is the covenant that they made in this text. Today, friends, we will be hosting our church's annual meeting, the time when we renew our covenant with one another and when we decide democratically and collectively the course of the church for the coming year. And so as we look towards the future of our world and the future of our church, as we begin to emerge from this wilderness that we have wandered in for a year that feels like 40, what kind of covenant will we establish with God and with one another? Getting out of the house in the morning is no small matter when you have young kids. Preach. While trying to get yourself together, you've also got to pour cereal and pack lunches and dig through the laundry if your son's favorite t-shirt is in there. You've got to keep your kids from strangling each other, make sure they've all got their schoolwork in their backpacks, and make sure they got masks. That's a real, I've had to turn around several times because they forgot their masks. And then you've got to mediate the inevitable argument about who gets to sit in which seat as you finally get in the car. In other words, it's a really bad time for the dog to get loose. But that's exactly what happened just a couple weeks ago when one of the boys left the door open for too long. Furley, God bless her, decided to make a run for freedom, bolting past me as I tried and failed to grab her collar and heading straight, of course, for the park across the street. As the minutes ticked by, inching closer to the ringing of the school bell, and I chased her around the wide open field, desperately trying to lure her back to the house with promises of meat snacks and dog treats. I began to get desperate. Angela had already left for work, so I was on my own, and I was quickly losing all hope of catching this dog anytime soon and getting the kids to school on time. I found myself standing in the middle of that field, 
loudly cursing the heavens and the dog, seriously beginning to lose my cool. It was about that time that an older woman and her dog came strolling into view, witnessing, witnessing the travesty of my personal breakdown. Come here, girl, she said. Come, come and meet my friend, she said to Furley, the promise of canine companionship enough to finally get her attention. And as the two dogs playfully yipped at one another, I asked the woman if she could keep an eye on Furley while I went inside to get a leash, which she did. And when I came back, Furley was just lying on her back, the woman rubbing her belly, and I was finally able to get her leashed and back in the house. Miraculously, we even made it to school on time. Now, if that woman had not come along, I might well have been out there for hours. I'm not exaggerating. I just couldn't have managed it by myself. It's a silly example, perhaps, but we need each other, even when we don't know each other. We can't make it in this world alone, and our individual freedom is worthless if it impinges on someone else's flourishing. I wish I could explain this to my dog but I can explain it here to you as best I can. When we bind ourselves in covenant, a social contract that works for everyone, we live into the promise of collective freedom. We live into Jesus' call to build a just and equitable and loving and compassionate society. And only then, as Moses says on behalf of God, will we succeed in everything we set out to do. Amen.